This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. How many of y'all have planned a car trip this summer? Raise your hand if you've planned a car trip. I'm going on a car trip this summer. All right, that's some of you guys. Driving in a car, maybe going to the beach. How many of you have planned, planned a, a train trip this summer? All right, train trips. Some, some of you traveling by train. All right, I will tell you this. I believe that it is one of the funnest ways to travel across the country is to travel on train, especially Amtrak. It's a very interesting way to travel. How many of y'all have planned a plane trip this summer? Plane trip. Anybody? Plane trip this summer. All right? I don't enjoy flying. I don't understand why they call the place that you take off a terminal. It makes no sense at all. Why? This really is not a very good forecast for what's about to happen to me. All right? (laughs) Don't enjoy it at all. But, you know, we do need those to fly some and get some places sometimes. How many of y'all planned a guilt trip? How many of y'all? Anybody planned a guilt trip this summer? <laughs> those are no fun, are they? Guilt trips, no fun. All right, here's, here's the thing about guilt when it comes to forgiveness. The need for forgiveness is always in its tension preceded by the issue of guilt. It's always preceded by guilt. This is actually what led the great writer C.S. Lewis to come to faith in Jesus. The tension of guilt. He noticed this, right? Watch this. All men alike stand condemned, not by alien codes of ethics, but by their own. He could not resolve the fact that everybody he met, even by their own standards, they were guilty. And all men, therefore, are conscious of their own guilt. It was simply that simple fact that C.S. Lewis as a, a young man, an atheist, came to faith in Jesus because he saw that imprinted on the hearts of every human being is the law of God and we stand condemned not by what the world tells us but by something that's inside of us. And guilt is a huge issue. And we can't talk about forgiveness without talking about guilt because we're all guilty. Every single one of us is guilty. We're guilty of breaking God's law and wronging each other. Every single one of us is guilty. Both of breaking God's law and wronging each other. So when you think about that, let me ask you this question. What's the worst wrong that was ever perpetrated against another individual? What's the worst wrong that was ever perpetrated against another individual. I I know that when I ask that question, things like the Holocaust come to mind, or genocides, or maybe even abuse, but can I submit to you this morning that the worst wrong ever perpetrated in the history of humanity was the cross of Jesus? Was the execution of Jesus? And here's the reason why it was the worst wrong. Because he is the only one of us that was not guilty. He's the only one of us that was not guilty, yet we convicted him as guilty, treated him as guilty, and murdered him as guilty. But out of that came the greatest gift to humanity. And I just want to make this observation that I think some of us need to hear today. This observation that out of 
our greatest trial can come our greatest blessing. We see that in the cross of Jesus, that the worst wrong ever committed in human history became the greatest blessing ever in human history. So I want to take a moment and look at the very beginning of his crucifixion. And I want you to see the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth after he has been crucified. Look at this. It's recorded there in Luke chapter 23. It's going to be up on the Sky Bible if you don't have your Bible with you today. All right. Great crowds trailed along behind him, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. I understand the condition of your soul. And I understand what's about to happen to me. But you are in much worse shape than I am in. It's a profound statement to make. Two others, both criminals, were led to be executed with him. Finally, they came to a place called the Skull. This is Golgotha. This literally is a hill that looks like a skull. At this point in time, it was on the outside of Jerusalem. Now it's at the center of Jerusalem as Jerusalem has grown. The, all three were crucified there. So he's crucified. The nails are driven in to his wrist. His feet are fastened to the cross. He is lifted up in front of everybody. Jesus on the center and the two criminals on either side. And the first words that come out of his mouth are these. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leaders laughed and scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's chosen one, the Messiah. And the soldiers mocked him too by offering a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. In the very beginning of this gruesome trial of crucifixion, the first words out of the mouth of Jesus were, Father, forgive them because closely connected to the guilt that he was about to expunge is the idea of forgiveness because guilt and forgiveness always go hand in hand i, I want to talk to you about what we do with our guilt typically i'm going to show you three things that we typically do with our guilt that keep us from experiencing the forgiveness of god number one is that we bury it some of you have actually heard that as advice. Your past is your past. Bury it and move on. Here's the problem. Your past is like a zombie. All right? You bury that joker, it's coming right back out. And it's going to chase you down and hunt you down and keep coming after you until you deal with it. See, sometimes we bury the past by minimizing the past. Well, it's not that big of a deal. It was something that I had to do. Everybody goes through that. It was, you know, everybody around me was doing it. We minimize it. Sometimes we rationalize our guilt. We come up with logical, rational reasons why we had to do what we were doing. We were so busy. It was so busy because, you know, we just didn't make time for God. And, you know, and I know that that's, a, that's not a good thing, but, you know, we were really trying to serve our kids and serve our family, and we were really focused on... No, See, here's the thing. When you feel guilty about something and you're trying to rationalize it, I want you to understand what you're doing. You are telling yourself rational lies. Rational lies. We rationalize our guilt and sometimes we compromise 
when we feel guilty. We'll get to a point where we say, that can't be a sin. That's not wrong. Let's just move on. That, that, that's okay. Stop feeling bad for that. No, that's, that's, that's okay. We rationalize it because we, we tried to bury the guilt. Psalm 32, David, after a moral failure, King David said this, you will never succeed in life if you hide your sins. After experiencing significant moral failure, he's, he's giving us this advice. You're, you're not going to succeed in life if you try to hide this stuff. Admit it. All right, so we try to bury it. Secondly, we blame others. We blame shift. It's not my fault, it's their fault. It's not my fault, it's your fault. And a lot of times the problem in relationships is that we try to balance the blame. We will have somebody who has done something against us and then we will do something in a relationship and we're dead wrong. But here's what we'll try to do. We'll go, you know why I did it? I had to do it because you were doing that. I mean, you, you, you know, it's, it's not as bad as what you are doing. And we try to balance the blame. The problem is that when we start shifting blame, we think that we're shifting it towards another person. But ultimately, when you shift blame, you shift it to God. You remember the beginning of the Bible, right? Adam and Eve, one rule, don't eat from this one tree. And they break the rule. Adam is, is confronted by God. And as a, a husband who's blown it, he does what every good husband does in that kind of moment. He blames his wife, right? <laughs> right? Look at how this happens. Genesis 3, verse 12. He's confronted by an all-knowing God. And Adam, this is what Adam says. Yes, I did it. But it was the woman you gave me who brought me some, and I ate it. Notice what he says. It was the woman you gave me. God, I didn't even have a decision about who I was going to marry. There's only one woman alive. That's it. You gave me her, and she gave me the fruit. It's her. And you, do you see what's happening? He's not really saying it's her fault. He's saying, God, it's your fault. You gave me her. And then she gave me the fruit. This is all back to you, God. Blame shifting always shifts the blame back to God. And then, number three, we beat ourselves up. We beat ourselves up. We punish ourselves for the guilt that we're carrying. Some of you have things that exist literally decades back. And when they come up as those zombies from your past... You will punish yourself for what you've done in the past. You know that guilt has been tied to significant health problems? Like numerous studies have been done on this. Numerous studies. That guilt is one of those conditions of our inner person that contributes to major, major health disorders. It's not just anxiety or depression. It's not even um, eating disorders. It goes well beyond that. And a lot of times we recognize that we're not healthy. 
We recognize that we need to get healthy. And we know that oftentimes in that decision that really we've got to change what we're eating. And so our first question that we ask when we decide to get healthy is, well, what should I start eating? What, what's the good food? What's, what, what does my diet need to look like? But the question that we really should ask first is what's eating you? What's eating you? What's the guilt that you're carrying that's keeping you from being the person? David, again, writing after that moral failure in Psalm 38, says, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. I am bowed down and brought low. All day long I go about mourning. See, here's the problem. When we beat ourselves up, we're attempting to atone for our own sin. We're attempting to punish ourselves so that we can experience the punishment that would make us right with God. But who knows when to say when? When you're punishing yourself. The problem is when you beat yourself up over your old sins, you don't know when to stop. Because it's not your job. Let me give you a couple action steps to address this for how we deal with guilt. Number one, schedule yourself time this week to be alone with God and do a spiritual inventory. I've included that in your worship guide today. It's a yellow um, kind of piece of paper that you're going to find in there, uh, a small little bifold with a bunch of questions. All right. These are not easy questions to go through. It's going to take you time to do this moral inventory. Probably going to take you about an hour. Okay? So schedule some time this week to do a spiritual inventory. And then number two, ask yourself, the reason you're asking yourself these questions, ask yourself, is there anything in my life that's keeping me from growing closer to God? Those questions are designed to help you discover what's keeping you from growing closer to God. Because God doesn't want you to stay on the guilt trip. God wants you to get off of the guilt trip. As a matter of fact, let's talk about what Jesus wants to do with our guilt. And what he wants us to do. Okay, because we're involved in the process of overcoming the guilt that we've carried into this moment. And the first thing that we need to do is we need to admit it. We need to admit our guilt. And many of us struggle with this. We struggle with it because we're literally in denial over it. We know that there are things, we, we feel the inward tension of what's happened, but when we look over it, we're like, I don't want to say that that was sin. I don't want to say that that was broken. I don't even want to own it. But we have to admit it. I literally was in counseling with a, with a couple, and one time I, I said, I said here's, here's what you guys need. You need to, a time of confession. And, and one of the people in, in that moment said, I don't have anything to confess. I literally don't have any sin. And see, 1 John 1.8 says that the person who says that they are without sin only deceives themselves. You know what? You don't deceive God because he already knows. And you're probably not deceiving the people you live with because they probably already know it too. But you are deceiving yourself. 
if that's what you say. We need to admit it. Listen to this. This is such an important quote. If you're taking notes, I'd write this down. To stop defeating myself, I must stop deceiving myself. To stop defeating myself, I must stop deceiving myself. Look at what Proverbs 20, verse 27 says. The Lord gave us a mind and a conscience we cannot hide from ourselves. That's why the inventory that you have is so important. Number two, how do we deal with our guilt? We accept responsibility. We take credit. We don't shift blame. I love in Psalm 51, basically Psalm 51 is the record of David's moral inventory after his moral failure. You may remember this story. David um, is out on the roof of the palace looking over the city and he sees a woman who is bathing on her roof. Now, I don't know if you know this, but um, a roof is not a very normal place to take a bath or a shower, okay? Uh, Just not the common place. If you're thinking this evening of where you should go and bathe, your roof is probably not a great place to make that happen, right? But Bathsheba does this, right? It's almost as if, as Scripture tells the story, they're trying to let us know that she was purposely exposing herself. And David sees her, wants her. They have an affair. She ends up pregnant. He ends up murdering her husband to try to cover up all of this. There's this whole litany of things. And eventually, David is rebuked by the prophet in front of all of, of, all of Israel. It's, it's a really horrible shakedown as it comes down. And in Psalm 51, David never blames Bathsheba. He takes full credit There's not 1% of the blame that shifted. He fully owns it. And if you're going to take responsibility, you kind of have to do what David did when he wrote Psalm 51 as a record to tell all of us about it. You have to do something that's uncomfortable. You have to tell a friend. If you're going to really accept responsibility, you've got to tell a friend. Because many of us have experienced the forgiveness of God. God is faithful to forgive us. But we haven't experienced the healing that comes when we share what's going on in our lives and how we've blown it and how we felt. This is why James 5.16 says it this way. Accept your faults to, or admit your faults to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. This is what happens when we confess to each other. I love the way Rick Warren put this. Rick Warren said, revealing your feeling is the beginning of healing. Revealing your feeling is the beginning of healing. You must accept responsibility. You must tell a friend to take responsibility for that. I love what Tim Keller said about accepting responsibility when we feel guilty. Look at this. The way to deal with guilt is to not avoid it, but to resolve it. You must take all the guilt on yourself and stop blame shifting and take responsibility for what you've done wrong. No excuses. Face the problem. No blame shifting. Accept responsibility. And then finally ask for forgiveness. See, the thing is, is that God knows. God knows. He, 
there's nothing in your life that's been hidden from him. God already knows the failures that exist in our hearts. And a lot of times we're like a little kid that's stolen some cake, right? You come in, you're like, where's my cake? And kids are like, I don't know. And they got like chocolate icing all over their face. Like, I don't know where your cake is. I don't know. Did you eat my cake? No. Uh-uh. No, icing all over their face. Like we, our kids have some like the same issues every single day. Like we go in the bathroom, there's pee on the toilet. I know who did that. All right. How'd pee get on the toilet? It wasn't me. No, I know it was you. Okay, the thing is, I just want you to admit it. That's all. And as a parent, when we deal with that, how much more does our father want to give us forgiveness? See, I think God is more willing to forgive you than you are willing to admit it. God's more willing to forgive you than you are willing to admit it. Look at this verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we freely admit that we have sinned, we find God utterly reliable. He forgives your sins and makes us thoroughly clean from all evil. That's what was happening at the cross. That Jesus was paying the penalty for our sin and giving us the way out from underneath our sin. He was giving us the chance to live free. He paid for our freedom. He paid for the right for us to be cleansed. He bought all of that for us in the penalty on the cross. Now some of you are struggling with the the tension of, well, well, what what if I forgive? What, what, what if I give forgiveness? What happens in the future? What happens in the future if I give some forgiveness? So here's, here's the thing about forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't change the future, but it clears up the past. And by clearing up the past, it gives you a shot at a better future. We need to be willing to forgive and love the same way that we have been forgiven and love. So let me give you a few action steps to go with this when Jesus wants to do with our guilt. Number one, choose one person that you trust and who loves you to be your confidant. One person that you love and trust to be your confidant. All right, here's the thing, right? Don't go to that person that you know always tells everybody's junk to everybody else and say, I want you to be my confidant. All right, If you know this person has a history of Facebook drama and posting things that have been told privately to them on Facebook, they're not a good selection for a confidant. But I would submit to you that because this is such a significant part of who God wants you to be, that in your life right now, already that person exists. Already. And number two, accept responsibility and admit your faults and failings to this person. And look at this. And expect to feel the burden of guilt begin to lift. Expect it. Because as you take ownership and confess, God is going to lift the burden of guilt and begin to healing. Now, kind of as we kind of work towards the resolution of this. I want you to see what Jesus does with our guilt. When we ask for forgiveness and we come to God and we have accepted it, 
We've owned it. We've, we've, we've asked for forgiveness from him. What does Jesus do with our guilt? Number one, God forgives me instantly. He forgives me instantly. Isaiah 55, 7, look at this. God is merciful and quick to forgive. Quick to forgive. And God wants you to experience forgiveness quickly. Because there's a myth floating around out there when it comes to guilt. That after you've done something that's wrong, feeling guilty and carrying guilt will make you a better person. That is a myth. Because carrying guilt will make you a broken person. God did not design you and make you to carry guilt. He designed you to be free from it, which is why He sent His Son Jesus to die so that you could experience quick forgiveness. God forgives me instantly. Number two, God forgives me completely. Which sins does God forgive? The problem is, is that some of you have in the back of your mind a list of sins that God won't forgive you for. I know he's forgiven me for this, I know he's, but, but this is a big one. This is a big failure. I really blew it in this one. Look what the Bible says in Colossians 2. He has forgiven all your sin. He has utterly wiped out the evidence of broken commandments which always hunt over your heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it to the cross. You see, if God has forgiven all of your sins, if God has given you the ability to live free from your sins and forgets your sins, shouldn't you do the same for yourself? Forgive yourself and not find your personal identity in it anymore. Number three, God forgives me repeatedly. How many of y'all know you've had to ask God more than once for forgiveness for the same sin, right? Maybe even today you're going to ask him again, right? God forgives me repeatedly. You know that passage that we read at weddings, right? 2 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. You remember that, right? You remember that? There's a little caveat in that passage that we like to forget. Where it says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. God casts that wrong when we have confessed it away from him and he says in the Bible that he casts it into a sea of forgetfulness it is not that God cannot remember it is that he chooses not to remember he is willing to forgive us repeatedly I love the way Hebrews 7 describes our relationship with Jesus and God right now look at this and it says Christ Jesus is always interceding on our behalf always 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 there's never a break there's never like hey I'm, I'm just give me a moment I gotta go use the bathroom all right always interceding on our behalf and he is willing because his grace runs deep to forgive us when we humbly confess our sin. But the, the problem is, is that many of us posture our hearts in a way that doesn't allow us to experience the forgiveness of God. Because we're not willing to admit it. We're not willing to take ownership of it. We're not willing to take responsibility. 
In Proverbs 3.34 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And when we humble ourselves and admit our faults, God is willing to forgive me repeatedly. And lastly, God forgives me freely. Forgives me freely. And a lot of times when we use that word freely, we, we use it in the terms of how broad His forgiveness is. That, that, it, that everything that I've ever done that is just being doled out, it's like Oprah, you get a forgiveness, you get a forgiveness, you get it. Right. We think about it that way. But I want you to focus on free. Because here's the thing about forgiveness. If it's not free, it's not forgiveness. If it's not free, it's not forgiveness. And as a human being, our greatest need was forgiveness. And forgiveness is God's greatest gift. Psalm 32 says this, What happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven. What joys when sins are covered over. What relief for those who have confessed their sins and God has cleared their record. Do you remember that story where the woman is caught in adultery? She's brought before Jesus. They're prepared to execute her by stoning her. And Jesus looks at the people who are there and says, now let the person with sin or without sin cast the first stone. Let the person without sin cast the first stone and they drop their rocks from the oldest to the youngest and they walk away and Jesus is left with this Adulterous woman, face to face. I want you to look at what he says to her in John chapter 8. Has anyone condemned you? No, sure. No, sir, she said. So neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Many of us learn this verse. Go and sin no more. And all the other sections I've given you an action step, there is no action step in this one because Jesus has already done the action. The response to his action is to go and sin. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.